Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles, from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Today's episode features two interviews with an in-depth look at twins. In 1984, Hrubeck and Robinette published what is arguably the first review of the role of twins in medical research, and the authors acknowledged that a growing distinction between two categories of twin studies, those aimed at assessing genetic contributions to disease and those aimed at assessing environmental contributions, while controlling for genetic variation. The so-called classical twin models compare phenotypic similarity within monozygotic or identical twin pairs to that within dizygotic or fraternal twins to establish the proportion of variance at a given trait that is due to genetic variation within a population and the proportion due to environmental variation. The so-called twin differences or discordant twin models focus on comparisons within monozygotic pairs, which control for maternal factors during pregnancy, gestational age, location and season of birth, postnatal familial factors, age, ethnicity, gender, and of course, genetics. And they are very useful at teasing out environmental factors. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. Later in this episode, we interview Dr. Kari Silvertuonen from the Department of Public Health at the University of Helsinki in Finland, and he's an expert in twin studies. And he talks about his recent publication in the journal Science Reports that identifies the significant effect of education on smoking prevention and cessation through a discordant twin study involving more than 100,000 twin pairs. But first, I catch up with a doctor who is recently in the world news for successfully separating craniopagus conjoined twins with fused brains. It's the pediatric neurosurgeon Professor Awaza Jilani from the Great Ormond Street Hospital of Children in London, the UK. Dr. Jilani led the first of its kind procedure alongside Dr. Gabriel Mufarej. He's the head of pediatric surgery at the Instituto Estadual de Cerebro Paulo Niermeyer, I probably butchered that, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and they used virtual reality to plan the surgery, which he calls VR throughout the interview. Dr. Gilani tells us how the surgery was. So that was, uh, yeah, that was a close call. In 2019, Dr. Gilani co-founded Gemini Untwined, a global charity dedicated to supporting the research and treatment for craniopagus conjoined twins. Enjoy listening. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jelani. So not only are you a pediatric neurosurgeon, but even more specific, you specialize in children that are joined at the head or brain. Is that correct? Can you describe a little bit how you specialized in this particular niche? <laughs> sure, sure. No, it's, it's like with most things in life, pure chance, really, being in the right place at the right time. So I work at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is a which is a pediatric hospital in central London. It's it's one of the largest children's hospitals in the world, and we were referred a set of craniopagus twins in 2006. So that was our first experience, and then five years later we had another pair. And then before you know it, the referral started to come in. In 2018, it became clear to us that we needed to set up a charity to look after the logistics. Of, of these complex cases, because a lot of these cases, well, most of them came from abroad and logistics proved to be a big challenge. They cost a lot of money and the hospital bills are enormous. 
So once the charity was set up, Gemini Untwined, in 2018, it seemed like we opened up the trap door and there were lots of these kids waiting to be looked after. And here we are, having just completed our sixth set of separation. I mean, during this time, we have been referred other sets that we've opined upon and decided not to operate. So, you know, there is a clear, there's a very sort of stringent vetting process in terms of the cases we take on. And uh, yeah, that's how I find myself where I am at the moment. What's really interesting is the media has its its own way of thinking. So a lot of neurosurgery, a lot of craniofacial, a lot of healthcare is quite complex and complicated for some reason. Conjoined twins, particularly craniopagus twins, just attracts such enormous media interest. And every year I keep being asked the same questions. Were you anxious? How did you feel? Well, of course I was anxious. What kind of a question is that? Yeah. Exactly. But these these two boys, they were actually a little bit older than the average patient pair that you would separate. Is that correct? Indeed. Indeed. They were. were. I mean, they were from the northern part of Brazil and they presented to the center in Rio just after their first birthday. So, you know, they were sort of the right sort of age when they presented. But the difficulty was with COVID, Brazil, like many other places in the world, was under complete lockdown. So the local team Dr. Gabriel, who was my counterpart there, him and his team didn't really feel they could access um, external help. I suppose in retrospect, you know, had they known about the VR, perhaps we could have done things during lockdown, but uh, it was not known then. Um, so they tried They tried to see what they could do themselves. There were a number of attempted separations, but uh, they aborted at the right time. You know, the kids were in, in a very good condition, very good shape, in spite of those attempted separations, which I suppose speaks to their skill and their sort of commitment to help these children. And the parents, I must say, they look like healthy three-year-old boys, don't they? They do, they do. And what was really heartwarming for me to see was a connection that the parents had formed with the local doctors. So the kids, once they presented, had lived in the hospital all this time. They'd essentially become hospital children. I'll tell you an anecdote that our colleagues will appreciate. So We do a lot of simulations, a lot of dry runs with this sort of surgery because the complexity of having two kids in the operating theater is just enormous. How do you prep them? How do you position them? How do you turn them? When you turn one twin, how do you manage the anesthetic lines, the ET tube, etc. for both twins? So what we've found, the safest way to do it is we get these two sort of large dolls and tape them together. And then with the whole theater team, perhaps 20, 25 people in the operating theater, we run through simulations in terms of how would we bring them in, how would we prep them, drape them, and then turn them around. Uh, so this is our standard. When I went to Brazil, I had told Dr. Gabriel that this is what I wanted to do the first day I got there, the day before the surgery. And I said, you know, you need to find two large dolls, the largest you can find because our boys are nearly four. And they'd done that. So we got the dolls and we ran through the simulation. And half an hour into the simulation, they said, I think it would be better if we did this with the children. I said, well, of course it would be better, but you can't have the kids in the operating theater for a couple of hours and for us playing with them. You know, most kids would would get really upset and cry. Oh, they said, oh, no, no, not these children. And the next thing I know is they're wheeling these two boys into the operating theater. They're so happy to see everybody. They know all the staff. The staff knows them. They know the staff. And it was like a two-hour play date for the kids. So the first time ever we've been doing these simulations, what we were proposing to do the next day with the live patients, that was a first for me. <laughs> but, it, you know, it did really speak volumes to the the bond that the boys had formed with the staff and the other way around. It was really heartwarming to see that. 
First, let's talk about the surgery itself. I, it's hard for me to imagine. So sure. what is the virtual reality actually? Is it augmented reality? How, how am I supposed to see this? Yeah, so the platform that we've created that we use, it's, it's primarily for visualization and planning. You know, so in virtual reality, effectively what, what we do is you take the, the medical data from the CTs, the MRIs, the angiograms, and then we convert them into STL files, into meshes, and these meshes are then put into our virtual reality platform. And, you know, you have a mesh for the brain, a mesh for uh, the blood vessels and so on and so forth. At the moment, the meshes that we have are static meshes, which means that you can't deform them. So what we can do with the meshes is you can, you can delete one brain and add one brain and delete some blood vessels, but you can't actually physically move these structures. So a lot of people, when they think about virtual reality, think about us doing the real surgery. We're not quite there yet. I mean, there is some cutting edge work happening as we speak, but I think we're probably still another five, 10 years away from, from virtual reality, getting to the point of, you know, doing the actual surgery in virtual reality. So the platform that we used was very much a, a simulation planning where we had the two brains and all the blood vessels and we were rotating it as we would in theater, removing a brain, looking inside and, and planning the various steps. I see. And how many people were in total involved in the surgery? Uh, in the theater, about 20 people. So you have two kids. So effectively, you need two anesthetic teams and then a lot of circulating staff, a lot of nursing staff, and typically four surgeons at a time. Uh, so it's around 20 people. It's quite a full theater. That's quite a full theater indeed. The first one, which we did on a Tuesday, lasted 12 hours. Then we took a break on Wednesday, which I spent on Ipanema Beach, a beautiful place. And then uh, Thursday morning, half six, we started the final stage. We were expecting that would finish late Thursday, early hours of Friday morning. But as it happened, it ran through till uh, sort of mid-morning on Friday. So it went on for about 27 hours. Quite a marathon, my goodness. Yes. And so what else besides the fact that these children were, uh, I believe, the oldest pair that you've ever entwined, is that correct? Correct, correct. But also their brains refused, not just their, their craniums. What decision do you actually make the call that this is going to work? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. So we, okay, so there are clear do's and clear don'ts, and then there's a lot of gray in between. I suppose that's healthcare in general, right? For example, the set we did in Israel last year, the brains were completely separate. Uh, the sinuses were shared, but the brains were separate. So that was a clear that, you know, yes, there are risks, but routine risks, and this is something that we should do. We've also been referred cases where they have deep thalamic connections, the two children. And for those where you have deep neural structures connected, those we would say are absolute no-go areas, because technically you can separate them. And, you know, there is a reasonable chance that both kids will be alive at the end of the separation, but they will be severely damaged. So, you know, as things stand, those cases we would not undertake. With these boys, the part of the brains, it was their left hemisphere in both cases. That portion of the left hemisphere of one twin was a portion pushed against the left hemisphere of the other. So effectively, the trauma that you would cause would be to a part of left hemisphere of each twin, which, worst case scenario, would give them a hemiparesis, may give them a speech issue as well. But the feeling was that those are acceptable risks. And on that basis, we proceeded. The, the surgery happened and it went uh, well, apparently. What were the initial post-surgical concerns that where you really felt, okay, this is going to work, this is going to be okay? Yeah, so we, we had planned it well, but we still came across anatomy and things that we had not 
witnessed before, seen before, and in some ways we weren't ready for it. And I remember early as a Friday morning around sort of 2 a.m., we'd been in surgery for, what, 18 hours or 19 hours at that stage. We knew that the, the deep veins of each twin were in the cleft between the two brains, and we had assumed that the deep veins would be freely suspended within CSF. But what we found was that the deep venous structures were stuck to the brain of the other twin. And this is something that we had not encountered before with our previous five sets. And on the images, you know, looking back, perhaps we could have picked that out, but it's something that we weren't looking for. So anyway, we had missed it. And at that point, it was a bit of a heart sick moment because we'd done pretty, everything else was done and the, this was all that was left. But this was a very critical structure because had we damaged the deep veins on one or both twins, that we would have lost them on the table. So uh, I, I remember, um, you know, a, a quite a profound heart sick moment thinking, oh my God, how did we miss this? You know, we, we, we shouldn't have missed this. And here we are, we've done everything, but this is almost an impassable step. So we took a break, Gabriel and I, we sort of went out, had a, I can't remember, coffee or two coffees or a dozen coffees, I don't know what, but, you know, we just were so, uh, and then said, okay, well, why don't we try and see if we can tease off the great veins? And if we can't, then what we may have to do is sacrifice a portion of the cortex of the contralateral twin, because what we really can't do is damage the great veins. So that was the game plan. And then we came back to the operating theater and it took a few hours, but painstakingly we managed to free up the whole deep venous structure of one twin and then went to the other side and the deep venous structure of the other twin and complete the separation. So that was a, yeah, that was a close call. And how are the boys doing now? They're making a good recovery. So my, one of my biggest apprehensions with these boys is what's, what's absolutely clear to us is the younger they are, the quicker they recover. And there are a number of factors for that. It's the plasticity of the brain, how the hemodynamics within the brain tissue work. The deep venous systems are so much larger the younger they are. So, you know, a few months old babies, you can practically sacrifice their sort of superficial uh, venous drainage and the deep venous drainage will just take over. But as we get older, that becomes less and less so. And so these boys were the turning four uh, this month. My, my main concern was that having done the separations, how they would respond with the venous drainage for the, for the rest of the brain would the deep venous system be sufficient? And uh, fortunately, it was. So the boys, they took a, well, one woke up within 24 hours, the other one took a bit longer. But once they woke up, we got some imaging the following week. And there was a degree of surgical trauma to the left hemisphere of both twins, as we'd expected. But there were no, no deep strokes, which essentially meant that the deep venous drainage had done what we had hoped it would do. Uh, excellent. It's quite an uplifting story that the sort of level of technical feats is actually plausible these days. No, no, indeed. Uh, you know, like we said right at the beginning, there are clear cases where we know it should be absolutely fine. And there are clear cases where we know it's not, uh, not a thing to do. And then between the two, there is a gray area that we're slowly pushing, pushing, pushing on to. And with every case, it's, it really does feel that although it's one case at a time, that our understanding of the disease and how to do the separation increases manyfold. Well, congratulations to the Brazilian team and to yourself, and so glad that this was successful. Many thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
And next, I was able to get Dr. Kari Silvatuanen from Helsinki, Finland on the line to talk about twin studies, and in particular, his recent report in Science Reports. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell me a little bit about twin research and why that's so important for teasing out some of the more complex human genetics? Yes, like twin studies, they have been used already about 100 years to get more information about the role of genetic and environmental factors. And, and even when now we can measure genome by using uh, genome-wide association studies, they are still quite useful because in, in many cases these genetic scores, they capture only a very tiny proportion of the genetic variation. But on the other hand, when we have information on twins, we can some way get information on, on whole genetic variation. That's right. And so can you give me some examples of how this can be used to f- pull out some complex traits? For example, uh, in when we have studied body mass index, we have used uh, twin studies to analyze how heritability of, of BMI, how it changes between environments. And, and what we found is in our previous studies that in obesogenic environment, it seems that in genetic factors become more important and it suggests that those persons who have a genetic susceptibility to high BMI, they react more strongly in, in obesogenic environment. So it like shows that we cannot actually make distinction between genes and environment, but actually environment affects us through our genome. All right. And you do that by comparing monozygotic versus dizygotic twins typically, is that correct? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a classical twin design. If monozygotic twins, if they are more similar than dizygotic twins, it gives evidence that genetic factors are in, they have a role behind of this variation because monozygotic twins they are genetically identical. On the other hand, dizygotic twins they share half of their genetic variation, just like ordinary siblings, and, and so these differences in the similarity it can give information on on the role of of genetic factors. And is the intrauterine environment actually the confounder that you're trying to normalize here? Yes, yeah. This twin studies is another great issue in twin studies that we can analyze the role of shared environmental factors. It could be like a share friends or or family family environment in the early childhood. On the other hand, in pregnancy, we have to keep in mind that actually in monodichotic twins, the environment in uterus it can be quite different because there is different vascularization of placenta, and so in this is seen that, for example, birth weight can be quite different within monodichotic twins. And actually, this is a design we have used in, in one of our previous studies when we analyze how pregnancy-related factors they associated in, in later height and, and BMI. And we found that in monozygotic twins, the twin who have lower BMI, it, uh, he or she had also lower BMI than a co-twin also in adulthood. So it suggests that this in, in uterus environment, it has role also for development of, of future BMI. And so we have many, many aspects we can actually utilize information on twins. Oh, exciting. So I'm curious, I wanted to zoom into your recent report just published in Science Reports, looking at smoking and how it's associated with education. Could you tell me about that study in particular? Yes. In in this study, we still use still another twin design. We use so-called discordant twin design. 
and be because it's very well known that at least in, in modern society education and, and smoking are associated so that those who have a better education they are less likely to smoke and, and, and more likely actually to quit smoking if they are currently smokers. But we don't actually know that what is the reason. Is it because those who have better educated, they have, for example, better health literacy, and so they know that the risks of the smoking, or maybe there are some other factors behind of that. And so what we decided is that we use this kind of twin pairs who are discordant for both for smoking and for education. And we found that the less educated co-twin, he or she had a higher probability to be smoker than the more educated co-twin. At least it's, it's uh, consistent with the hypothesis that there is like a causal association between education and, and smoking. I see. And, and to power this kind of analysis, you need a lot of twin cohorts and a lot of twins. So I see from your abstract here that you had over 10,000 twin pairs uh, in this particular yeah. analysis. Actually, yeah, yeah. actually we have much, much more twin, twin pairs we had in, in abstract. We have only 10,000 of discordant twins who had a different education and different smoking, but in in the total cohort we have more than 100,000 twin individuals. And so these large amount of twin individuals, we identified those twin pairs who have a different smoking and, and different education and so most informative for this study. This actually shows that in, in this kind of discordant twin analysis needs a very large sample sizes because especially monochicoted twins who are most informative they usually are concordant because genetic factors affect both smoking and and education and so we need quite a large sample sizes to identify these very informative monochicoted pairs who are discordant. I see. And it also suggests that perhaps that 90% of the twin pairs are concordant. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so that's an interesting analysis as well. So the take-home message from this particular study, just as an action item, would be that smoking secession and smoking prevention could benefit from targeting education. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It, it suggests that when we have uh, monochicotic pairs who are, they have, they share the same genome and they share the same childhood environment, but still the co-twin who have a lower education tends to smoke more often than the co-twin who have a higher education. And so it suggests that it, there is something in, in education preventing you smoking and, and maybe it's just information. And, and so if we could tailor the message for those persons in the way that it is easy to understand, easy to capture the message, it may help prevent smoking. I see. Thank you. Did you have any other points you wanted to make about twin studies or encouraging people to collect data from twins, for example, that you wanted to say? Yeah, in, in what what say that in, in twins, they're still, even when we have used this design more than 100 years, they're still relevant and we can still have new questions we can, we can answer by twin studies and they are still collecting all over the world and, and hope that we will continue this collection of existing twin cohorts, getting even bigger cohorts and longer follow-ups, but also in, in establishing new cohort in, in some areas of the world, we still don't have any or very little information. Thank you so much for your time and very interesting topic. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. 
Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 